Oh yeah. Canceled too soon. A podcast. Podcast. About TV. Television shows. That were. That were very, very short. Canceled too soon. One season or less. Oh yeah. This week on Canceled Too Soon. Vinyl. Vinyl. Cocaine. 1970s. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Cancel Too Soon, the podcast review television series that lasted one season or less. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for Crave Online and Bloodhouse.com and the ghost of the B-Movies podcast from whence we hail. Everyone calls me Bibs. I, I hate it when you do that. What, when I introduce <laughs> podcasts? When, when, you, when you slip into your introductory mode. <laughs> Turn into your slimy game show you host all of a sudden. You always have to comment on it. You can never just let it go. Sorry, no, I can't. You just have to let the audience know that one of you, one of us does not approve. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name is Whitney Seibold. I'm the other co-host of Cancel Too Soon. Oh, I, I hate it when you do that. I know, I'm so sorry. I, uh, I also, co- I am the other co-host of the B-Movies podcast. I uh, contribute to Blumhouse.com and <laughs> Legion of Leia and Crave Online. And uh, we're here to review a, a, a TV show that just failed. Yeah, just just like recently. Ju- like just last, like two months ago. A lot of our uh, episodes so far have been kind of obscurities or shows from a long time ago. Uh, but f- we, we, we try to mix it up. We try well, to do except some, for the, some contemporary stuff. We did do The Muppets. We did a couple. We did yeah. The Muppets. Darknet wasn't terribly old. There you go. Uh, and we want to mix it up a little bit more because when we mix it up more, our ratings go up. Because <laughs> <laughs> no one really cared that much about Man and Machine. It was only for you and I, that I, one. Imagine that. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> um, but just uh, to show that we, we are watching contemporary TV and that we are listening to your requests, uh, this week we're covering one of our most requested series, especially since it only recently got canceled. Mm. Uh, it is the HBO series Vinyl, executive produced by Martin Scorsese and Mick Jagger about a fictional but in some respects typical record label in the 1970s amidst the whole musical scene uh, of the spe- 1970s. Specifically 1973. It's, yeah. it's, that's kind of significant, that it's right... It was right before disco started to take off, and they, yeah. they do address that in near the end of the, the series. Yeah, they're getting... They're, but, it's uh, it's this, obvious that's where they're getting to. This was in, in the early 70s when the music scene was really diverse and kind of exciting, and it's what uh, Martin Scorsese and Mick Jagger remember as being sort of a golden period, so they wanted yeah. to focus on it. Um, and Vinyl, uh, obviously, came off the backs of uh, Boardwalk Empire, which was Martin Scorsese's uh, first series for HBO, which the, the was... Show, Popular, but not like a huge Game of Thrones hit or anything. But, but it, it lasted it, a long time. It was a hit, and uh, the the showrunner of Vinyl and was the same one of from Boardwalk Empire, a guy named Terrence Winter. Yeah, uh, who. Uh, yeah, he's he's he's, 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 he's also the, executive producing the show. Uh, he, yeah, he's the honcho of vinyl. And uh, I interviewed Terrence Winter uh, mm-hmm. for he also wrote the screenplay to Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street, an excellent movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ex- and, excellent movie. And vinyl movie. had been in the works for for many years. They've been trying to get a show about this made, but it's expensive. The music rights mm-hmm. alone are a fortune, uh, and it just you know hadn't quite happened yet. But he was just on the verge of getting it made mm-hmm. with Martin Scorsese and Mick Jagger. Is partly Mick Jagger's idea. And I was interviewing him and I said, oh, so you're going to meet Mick Jagger like right after this interview? No. And he was like, yeah. I'm like, can you get him a message for me? <laughs> and he said, what, what, 
what what is it? Because I'm sure he gets this shit oh. all the time, and people are just like, I want him to sign my parts. And I just said, <laughs> Tell him I love Northern Song. I, oh, no, no, I said, Tell him I love Free Jack. <laughs> Someone That's out there really loves funny. Free Jack. And then after like the interview ended, I realized, Shit. I got a message to Mick Jagger, and that's what I that's told what him. You told him. I had one shot to talk to Mick Jagger. <laughs> my good. comment was that this sci-fi movie in which Anthony Hopkins wants to download his brain into Emilio Estevez so he can bang <laughs> Emilio Estevez's girlfriend, played by Renee Russo, and Mick Jagger is the bounty hunter who's got to capture Emilio Estevez in this dystopian future without hurting his body, so Anthony Hopkins can bang in it. And I told him that movie was okay, and that was my message. Yeah, it's like it's like you get to meet God, and your only question is, so, uh... Yeah, what hot dogs buns come in packages of eight? How you doing? (laughs) Have have your big question at the ready, you know, just in case. So think these things (laughs) out, is my advice to you. So (laughs) Vinyl uh, finally premiered uh, uh, earlier this year. Mm. Uh, It premiered on Valentine's Day, weirdly enough, uh, on February 14th, and it lasted 10 episodes. So Mm. it was done by April... April 17th. April 17th, thank you. I wrote it down, but I couldn't find where I had written that down. Um... Here we go. Hey, there we go. So, April 17th, 2016. Well done indeed. <laughs> so it takes place in 1973, yeah. and the main character is a fellow named Richie Finestra, played yes. by uh, Bobby Cannavale from yes. Boardwalk Empire. Uh, uh, and Bobby the, Cannavale, who I love. I uh, love he, him as an actor. He's he's a good actor. He has yeah. that sort of the, the studly Guido thing about him. Yeah. Well, uh, a, which, which isn't really a hot look anymore. You don't find the, the, the sexualization of Italians mm-hmm. has, has, is has on seen, the, is on the, on the descend. Yeah. Yeah. Which hurts me greatly. It, it was really high in the seventies though. With, oh you know, yeah. With, with Stallone and Travolta. Absolutely. No, it was a good time. Mm. I wish I'd been alive. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, Bobby Cannavale is a really solid, mm. interesting presence. He is a big guy. An imposing mm. physical, just just the size of him. But he's got kind eyes. He's mm. very see. Oh, he often plays very sensitive roles. You'll find he's often playing like a like a grieving husband or, or a guy who's like <laughs> in like a relationship strife in no. movies. Um, like he was great in Blue Jasmine as this sort of long suffering yeah, boyfriend yeah, character. He was really great in Blue Jasmine. Yeah, he's he's a the, wonderful uh, actor. And but he's always he, he never had his like his big thing. Mm. Kind of like when Steve Buscemi got the star in Boardwalk Empire, it was like Steve Buscemi always plays like the second fiddle in something. And now he gets like this big, crazy, awesome starring role. And this was Bobby Cannavale's. Yeah, Bobby Cannavale was always the supporting role. He didn't yeah. have a lead. This was, yeah, this was his big break. I always thought he'd make a great Punisher. I don't and know about the Punisher. I think he'd be interesting off-ball, off ball, off kilter casting because he'd bring a lot of sensitivity to yeah. it that you wouldn't expect. But I could buy I've, him. I'm trying to think of someone up. I'm trying to think of like a good leading role, but I put him in a superhero movie, and he's always like Catwoman's boyfriend he, or something. He was he was Ant Man's wife's new husband, and I remember <laughs> thinking to myself, God. That was one of the times when I was watching a superhero you, you movie look, and I saw an actor and I'm just like, dude, hold out for a better role because you, you can get a better you superhero do, do better role. Than this. You can get a better superhero role. Not, not everyone can. So if, Bobby if, Cannavale could. If you're a young woman torn between Paul Rudd and Bobby Cannavale. Ooh, that's, that's, a, you that's, know a, what? that's a tough choice. That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good place to be. <laughs> yeah, that, those are the problems you want to have. Yeah, right? This, this works out great for everybody. But, uh, uh, but, <laughs> Uh, Bobby Cannavale plays Richie Finestra, yes. and uh, Richie Finestra is a head of a record la- an imaginary ACR. Re- ACR record label, which is RCA backwards. Ha 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 ha! Isn't, ha. isn't that cute? Yeah. And they have some real bands and some fictional bands, which is odd. Which is a they little have, odd. They have Donny Osmond. 
Yeah, young uh, Donny Osmond. Yeah, they. Uh, you see them like kind of like turn down Abba and like a couple other like weird yeah, bands. Yeah. They have Robert Goulet, who actually has a fun episode where he's doing a Christmas album. Uh-huh. Uh So that's kind of fun. And there's a whole bunch of episodes, and, and you can tell this is a big part of the appeal was that there would be actual musicians getting played in their in well, their young years. There's a, there's yeah, a whole yeah, there's, episode where they're just trying to sign Alice, Alice Cooper. There's a young Alice Cooper in one episode. There's the young Robert Goulet. Yeah. Uh, there was. Um, uh, and others as well. <laughs> uh, that are Parsons. My mind. Parsons. Oh yeah, Alan Parsons Alan Par- project. We had uh, Cross- no, 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 not Alan Parsons project. Like Grand right. Theft Parsons. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that guy. I can't remember. His... Uh, there was. Wow, uh, I am fired Cro- from Cros- my own show. Cro- Crosby, <laughs> Stills, and Nash ourselves. showed up in one episode. Yeah, Mama uh, Cass, I think, was uh, in one. David Elvis. Bowie was in one episode, and yeah, the aging Elvis. Yeah. Um, and uh, Mick Jagger was in it, but only the back of his head. Just a little bit. <laughs> like he, he, this, this figure walked past the camera in the David Bowie episode, and they just said, hey, Mick. And this isn't, isn't uh, music, but uh, John Cameron Mitchell plays, plays a killer Andy Warhol. He's very good as Andy Warhol. Yeah, Andy Warhol is actually a supporting player because he used to be friends with, and still is, but they're mm. not as close as they used to be, uh, Richie Finestra's wife, played by mm. Olivia Wilde. Yeah, and her her story arc is that, she, yeah, she used to tool around with Warhol. Mm-hmm. She was a big party girl back in the day. Uh, she uh, did drugs, hedonistic, bisexual lady, <laughs> and she ended up kind of settling down with Richie, hoping that she could live the high life. And mm. at the start of the series, his the, the get, album is about to be back, sold. He, the, 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 the album, the, the, the company is about, about to be sold. She's looking forward to the money. He decides not to sell, which means she's in the poorhouse and she can't live high anymore. And she's very upset about that. Yeah, the whole basic premise of the show is they have everything, and then Richie screws up this deal, and now they have nothing, and they kind of have to build well, it up back up again. But Richie wants to do it, sort of with principles but mm. what's weird is well, that he, his principles are drug infused yeah, uh, yeah uh, rock and roll rebel screeds mm. in many respects Here, well, the structure of the show at least from the first season uh-huh. uh is the newsroom in which it's basically just here are the nuts and bolts here's how the the sausage gets made mm. uh in this particular business uh, but at the beginning of the episode, someone says there's something wrong with the way we're doing this. We have to do this the right way. And then well, that throws everyone off. It risks damaging everyone's careers and livelihood. But you get the sense that they're going to figure it all out and it's all going to be well, okay. And, and it's not that he necessarily just screws up the deal. It's that he – the inciting incident for all of this mm-hmm. is – he uh, he falls off the wagon. He gets super yeah. high. Yeah. He goes to see the New York Dolls in concert. Yeah. Which is something we all wish we could have done. Yeah. And they rock so hard that the building literally falls over. And he gets up out of the rubble with this sort of new revelation mm. that he wants to go back to music. And a rec- recurring motif throughout the series is he has flashbacks to the old school rock and roll and the doo-wop records that he grew up on that yeah. made him love rock and roll to he, begin he with. He got into this for the right reasons, mm. but by being on the managing, uh, management side, mm. um, he started getting corrupted by the money and the payola and all the scamming that is required mm. in order to just get a record selling in the first place. Right. And he lost track no. of why he cared in, at all. 
Quick question. Yeah. Did that bit where the New York Dolls rocked the, rocked the building so hard that it fell down on them, did that really happen? That is a fictional event. God damn it. I know. I'm I sorry. I thought it was a metaphor. I thought it wasn't even going to... Because there's this motif that recurs throughout uh, the series where... In every episode, there's, I think, there's mm. at least one moment where a song is playing and then the camera pans over and you see Janis Joplin singing the song. Yeah, like there's an actor playing like you know, Big Joe Turner or something in yeah, the or, room singing singing that song that Bobby yeah. Cannavale is just sort of thinking thinking about at that moment. Yeah, and it's almost like that HBO series Dream On. <laughs> a little the, bit, yeah. Where the protagonist just keeps remembering the TV shows he watched as a kid because that's just his frame of reference for uh-huh. stuff. But what's weird is that it made more sense in Dream On. Here it just seems like they're just being flourishy. Like, look, it's 1973. Mm. We didn't get to do anything with Janice. We want to do something with well, Janice. I, We're going to do this, but this flourishy dream sequence. It's not just 70s nostalgia. It's the nostalgia of the people who are alive, who are adults in 1973. Mm-hmm. as well as modern 73 music and the series is wall-to-wall music oh yeah there's that must all have been kinds of cost them a fortune oh, my god that must have cost them a fortune because dear god frankly this is one of the best soundtracks you'll ever find Eight vinyl is really good with that the yeah, other vinyl put together all kinds yeah. of, like in one episode i think it was the fifth episode there's somebody's walking down the street and you hear this like really loud sort of punky riff mm-hmm. and if you've seen the documentary film a band called death yeah about the band Death, Death. Uh, which is sort of like proto pre punk in like they put out a record in 1975, so it's an it's anachronistic, Uh but uh, they put out a track called Politicians in My Eyes, Uh and somebody's walking down the street, and this is like blaring on the soundtrack in 1973. Um, Well, they might have written it and just been playing it at a club nearby. No, Ah. nobody, nobody listened to Death. You see, they couldn't get they couldn't play a bar. Nowhere? No, they, if you've seen the documentary, A Man Called Death, yeah, they, they were barely struggling to put this record together. They put it out. Nobody bought it. Uh-huh. It's totally obscure. It wasn't, re- it was rediscovered in the 2010s, yeah. and that's how people know it now, and now we associate it with the 70s, even though nobody was listening to that in the 70s. So this is clearly an enthused music supervisor just trying to yeah. cram in this really awesome song. Like, we're on HBO. Show, yeah. They can afford it. Let's, let's fucking let's, do it. Let's get death on this If show. you've ever seen the HBO series Treme, which lasted, I think, two and a half seasons, maybe three. Uh, it's from the same guy who did The Wire, right? Yeah, it's from yeah. Uh, David Simon and his and his cachet of brilliant uh, <laughs> uh, television producers, and, and mm. uh, it has the most stunning <laughs> New Orleans, like all the music in, <laughs> nice. in there. I'm like my God, there's, there should be like a. 400 song mm. box set so, of the songs from Treme and I would listen to it from beginning the, to end it'd be amazing the, the use of music in the sh- yeah. in the show is pretty smart uh, and it would have to be because that's the premise yeah. you can't do this well, show and, and if you can't play any of the music it's and, worthless also the executive producer is Mick Jagger he, mm-hmm. who knows a little something about music I understand and he can probably just ask yeah. Hey Alice, can we use uh, can we use schools out or whatever? Yeah. Like Alice is just like fine. Sure, Mick, yeah. But yeah, Mick's <laughs> calling. Hey, calling up. Well, I was about to say David Bowie, but the estate of David Bowie. Yeah. No, he was alive. No, David Bowie was alive he, when the he, show was made. He yeah. died during the run of the show. Yeah. So David Bowie, I, I would hope he approved his portrayal. He's actually only in it a very small bit. Yeah. Um, he's, he's in one scene of one episode. Yeah. Uh, but he's but, revered as well. He should have been. But like, uh, there's a scene where the Juno Temple character, who we haven't gotten to yet. Oh uh, yeah. She, a big uh, ensemble cast. She's. Sleeping Sleeping with Mick Jagger's son and uh, uh, it playing a character, playing a character. He yeah. doesn't play Mick Jagger's son, but uh, he has a big star record. Now, in 1973, again, nobody had big star records. Uh, the joke about big star is that only 400 people bought the record, but every single one of them started their own band and those bands all did something. <laughs> 
like big stars, this hugely influential, important band, and they sold no records whatsoever. Awesome. So that this guy has big star says a lot about that character. There you go. All right, let's let's uh, let's run down the ensemble cast right. real fast, and we'll at least talk about where they start. Mm. Uh, so there's Richie Finestra. He's uh, trying to get his company back on the ground the right way for the right reasons. But he's back on coke. And yes. something else in the first episode, he is accessory to murder. Yeah, <laughs> that's, there's, that's also a big part of the there's show. There's this uh, which radio really... mogul who refuses to play their albums because Donny Osmond snubbed his daughter's birthday party, I think. Something, something like, like that. that yeah. And uh, so he won't play any of their, their label's albums and they're trying to like get him coked up, make him happy. And he's then, played by Andrew Dice Clay, by the yeah, way. Yeah, who looks exactly like this one guy I knew in high school who like managed the theater. <laughs> like he was always like he, hanging out in the backstage of the theater next to this one couch that had been in my high school since the 1950s and he knew everyone who had ever had sex on it. It was yeah, really yeah. creepy. Everybody knows a guy like that. that he was that guy. that guy. Like I never asked him for drugs, but I bet he could have got him for me. Like that kind of thing. <laughs> like, like it was... He seemed cool, but I don't think I want to know him very well. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He was a really nice guy. I know him really well. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so that happens, and that's like this sort of... It actually doesn't pay off terribly well. It's just this it, it, undercurrent of paranoia, and like you're waiting for the other shoe to drop, but it, it never quite does, I even think when it wraps itself up kind of it, at the it end. It feels like the showrunners didn't have enough faith in the music angle of the show, so they had to add this... St- frankly, kind of dumb plot underneath it all, which is forgotten for great long stretches of the because show. Because it's not important. And when it comes back up again, it's the least interesting thing going on. And, and they, one of them and they just trite. And they just kind of get out of it. Like yeah. it's, it's just it, the way what's, that story ends. The, what's frustrating so about vinyl is that obviously everyone involved is super talented. The music is amazing. Mm-hmm. Just the promise of cameos is alone is enough to get you through an episode. <laughs> and yet uh, it falls back on storytelling devices that, I'll be honest, five, ten years ago would have been top flight. Would have well, been totally fine. But now the, but in the wake of Mad Men and the wake of the say, newsroom and the wake of all of these classy cable is, shows, tro- new tropes have invented yeah. themselves and vinyl follows almost all of them. There this show resembles Mad Men like nobody's business. Uh, oh, in yeah. fact, a lot of the stories I I was relating my my wife didn't want to watch this with me, but I was relating the stories to my wife who did watch Mad Men and she yeah. was saying, "Wait, that's that's from Mad Men. That's yeah. also from Mad Men." Like that one that's girl, also from like Mad the Men. girl who works in the office who was busting her ass to break mm. through the glass ceiling who is obviously the person we're supposed to be rooting for, mm. played by Juno Temple, that's from Mad Men. Yeah. That's yeah. super important. And now here it's a little unfor- different because she gets to have three ways and deal coke uh, yeah. and it's but, Juno Temple, so and, she's she's Juno Temple, and I love her. But and, and I love I love her on um, uh, Mad Men too. Don't get me wrong, but it's mm-hmm. like it's it it seems like it's the exact same idea for a character and the exact same idea mm-hmm. for a plot, and it never and, but, quite strikes out and feels and like her, its own thing. And her plot never really resolves in any sort of satisfying way because the show is so slow going. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, so we start at this point where everybody wants to reinvent it, and you think that the whole series is going to be this kind of new way of trying to be successful with just the music. And it's got a return to purity and people are kind of getting back to their principles. Like in the newsroom. Like in the newsroom, exactly. Or one of many subplots on Mad Men, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But the show, Bobby Cannavale's character doesn't ever focus on like he says this right at the uh, start, sort of the the first episode it's and the then, mission statement for the series it's and a then promise that the show the, makes. the following few episodes are just him behaving like a coked out dick 
A little bit. <laughs> and there's nothing he seems to be doing that is any different from what he was doing before. Occasionally he'll say something big like, we need to get a band that's like all gonna, kinds yeah, of it's awesome make, and fun. It's going to make your heart yeah. beat fast. And he has all these great screeds, but no, it's, no, it's all kind of pretentious neither, bullshit. Neither he nor any of the other characters are particularly moved to change the way they do anything. Yeah, it's the f- only character who really does is the young guy who ends up in the new in the mailroom. Yeah, he's this guy who uh, he was he was an A and R guy, and he was responsible for finding bands, cultivating them, getting them ready for for, yeah. for show business. Was, and then at the beginning of the of the uh, series, he's led on by Alice Cooper. He's yeah, he's oh my god, that's a great episode. <laughs> so he th- so he's been told everyone in A and R has been told you need to find a new sound, a new band. I forget the, how long you get like two or three weeks or it was something. Like two weeks to yeah, yeah to find yeah, at least one new, good which is act. kind of a ridiculous thing. But like that's the challenge, and yeah. that's what you got to do, and that's. Okay, cool. That's a decent enough mm-hmm. storyline. Um, and he hasn't found anyone, and you get the impression that he's kind of a dork, and he doesn't necessarily have good taste in music. Uh-huh. Uh, but he's off doing uh, recording some bullshit album when Alice Cooper just happens to walk by. Uh, and I... he decides, fuck it, I'm going to go and pitch Alice Cooper. And he pitches Alice Cooper on ditching his band, going solo. And Alice Cooper is just sort of like, you know, doing drugs with him, and like taking him golfing with a giant snake. <laughs> and it's like, it just seems like a cool, like, oh my god, you get to hang with Alice Cooper all week. It's mm-hmm. amazing. And then you find out Alice Cooper was actually just fucking him over because okay. Richie Finestra totally stood up Alice Cooper when he was just getting started mm-hmm. and it so, like cost him and his band money and and so he's just he'll never sign yeah, with so with his- ACR and so he like gets the guy into like one of his prop devices and like almost chops off his head, <laughs> and it's great. Yeah, yeah, and and it's great. Uh, but, but that, that kid, that kid ends up uh, getting. They say we're gonna fire you because you didn't do it. And he says, "Oh, please let me keep my job. Okay, we'll put you in the mail room. That's all we got." And yeah. he goes down to the mail room. Turns out it's all black guys in the mail room. Mm. Uh, uh, maybe which, Hispanic guys. I think. Also. Oh, maybe just non-white yeah. people. Definitely not white. Guys. The people he doesn't hang out. Boy, with we sound white orange. because we just couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> we are monsters. I, I think they were all black guys. Okay. But uh, he ends up listening to the music to that, these, that these black guys are going yeah. to, and they go to a club, and he discovers this whole new dance scene yeah. that is not being exploited. And he's mm-hmm. like, hey, why don't we just start bringing in all of this sort of dancey sound to our yeah. label? And then the show ends. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, his, the that's his arc. But now, the other here's arc the problem. Is, yeah. You need one episode where he gets through all of that. You kind of well, it's yeah. so it's one thing to have. Here's the deal: it's one uh, thing to have like a subplot. It's like obviously we know that you know musical tastes and and uh, styles evolve over time and they go through phases and patterns. And so we know disco is coming. We uh, also know like there's a whole bit uh, at the end where there's a bar where a couple of scenes take place and it looks like they're changing their name to CBGBs. Yeah, we're gonna play country, bluegrass, blues, you know yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, I see what you're doing. Oh, you're cute. <laughs> You can't get away with that. That's a Flintstones hey, hey joke. You, hey, you, little Johnny Ramone, put that down. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's this. It's this. It's a Flintstones joke. Yeah. yeah. When you're watching the Flintstones, it's just another sitcom about a husband who's too it's, shitty for his well, own it's, wife. It's the, it's the honeymooners. It's the, I know it's the honeymooners, but like not everyone has seen the honeymooners nowadays. <laughs> but you know, the Flintstones. Sort of somewhat ironic, but yeah, it's just a standard sitcom about guys and their wives. With but they always have this recurring gag they can always throw to just and and oh and the the vacuum cleaner is a baby woolly mammoth ha 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 it's a living 
that's what vinyl is with a lot of its <laughs> pop culture references. It's just this throw it in anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, th- this movie is or movie. This this TV series is completely lost in nostalgia, which is uh, part of which the is, appeal. To be fair, it's well, it's part of the appeal, and it's great to have the setup. And like Mad Men, mm. it really over fetishizes its period detail. They're going to get all the interior design right. They're going to mm. get all the dress right. And it's fun to look at. It's it's fun yeah. to look at, but what I I feel like it's a little too perfect. Now I wasn't alive in 1973, mm-hmm. but I feel like they were getting trying to put so many period details together in one place mm-hmm. that it felt like more of an encapsulation of 1973 it's a than, than an accurate depiction. It's yeah. like you look at the way uh, Adam Sandler does the 80s. It's like all of the pop 80s stuff crammed in one place. Yeah, and it doesn't matter if if uh, mm. uh, you know that episode of Dallas where Jr. got shot actually happened in the same year that's what you remember from the 80s so bam bam yeah. called death <laughs> yeah exactly it's from the 70s right you, you like the yeah. 70s you know what got the right? seven you know what got the 70s right david fincher's zodiac watch that instead well but. yeah well yeah but again that's part of the appeal though i really do feel like an enormous part of the appeal of vinyl is just dude we've all heard the stories we've all heard the stories about doing blow backstage with, a lot of with, with all of these of musicians blow, yeah. about having crazy orgies mm. about you know getting involved in organized crime <laughs> and people dying in car accidents yeah, and so- just hanging out with Warhol because fuck it he was available like it just there's all this shit that's the fun of it but when it actually has to have a plot when it actually has to have characters go from point A to point B it tends to be a little frustrating. Let me tell you about another character. There's another character played by Ray Romano. Mm-hmm. And he was very ready to sell the company. He's a partner at ACR. And at the beginning of the episode, at the beginning of the season, uh, he's the one who's the most devastated by Richie deciding not to sell the company. Mm-hmm. Because he had investments. He was, you know, he's, his daughter's going to college. Um, he's the most financially screwed. And yeah. I kept expecting him to kill himself at some point. There's a part where he's in his car. And I'm just like, is this just where he's going to put he's on the... He's just going to turn on, yeah, turn, turn suck the, the brown wind of doom. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he never does. But regardless, he's on this like constant path where what's he going to do? Is he going to betray Richie and move off in his own direction? Is he going to find this new act and it's just going to be a thing? And kind of... It all comes to a head in this one really weird episode where mm. they decide that their one liquid asset they can get rid of that will help get the company through a few months by itself is they're going to sell their the private jet. Plane, yeah. So they sell the jet. They got $90,000. Mm. No small amount mm. of money. And then they're just going to take a, you know, hop a red eye back to LA or, or no, New York. Hop a red eye back they're to New, New York. York. Yeah. My apologies. I'm in LA. They hop a red eye back to New York or whatever, but then they get invited to a party and the guy who bought the airplane was kind of an asshole. So he was like, fuck it, we're going to steal all his clients. And it's just this fun thing where they meet a bunch of cool people at a party. And then they find out that Elvis might be looking to change labels. (laughs) So they immediately run to Las Vegas. You know, Richie is feeling really, really bad about screwing Ray Romano over. So he hooks him up with two young tarts who Mm. are totally going to fuck him. And he's going to have his first three way and he's super excited about it. You know, Richie's oh. gonna try to seduce the king into changing his mm. his whole and, uh, plan, and then there, there's no shortage of Elvis impersonators. The guy they got to play Elvis doesn't look like Elvis. Nobody no. looks like Elvis, but he sounds exactly he like Elvis. He plays it well he's, enough. Yeah, and there's a bit where it's like you can tell he's appealing to Elvis because Elvis was you know trapped doing Vegas, and you can tell he wasn't happy. It used to be about mm. the music. Richie gets him thinking it's about the music again, and then the colonel shows up. <laughs> Elvis's legendary manager, uh, agent, 
manager? A- angel of death, whoever yeah. it was. Yeah. He was the guy who just who just who handled the king. <laughs> and he just comes in and he just says the right magic words to just show Richie that Elvis is not all there anymore. Yeah. yeah. Elvis, something happened. Sure, sure. He's not he's not Elvis anymore. Show him what you showed Nixon, Elvis. Yeah, yeah. and he just fucking beats fucking Richie to the ground with some weird judo move. And then he <laughs> just walks off and is like, must move like water. Must move like water. And you're just and Richie's just like, yeah, okay, yeah, we don't El- want Elvis. We don't want El- <laughs> Elvis is out of his mind. Elvis Elvis is Elvis is doing the best Elvis can do right now. And well, it's actually very sad. But well, it's very sad because in that moment, and you know, I'm I'm an Elvis fan. Everybody's an Elvis fan, but uh Elvis was great. I, I, I have, it, have it so stuck in my head that Elvis just died the way he did in 1977. It's just yeah. bloated, dead. It's kind of a joke at the end of his career for a lot of people. Which happens uh, to a lot, of, a lot of celebrities. I recently saw Elvis, That's the Way It Is, or... Oh, and, the, the, the concert film. Yeah. And, uh, which is from the mid-70s, right? Which, yeah, was done in the mid-70s. Yeah. And you can see that he is still a great performer. Yeah, he knew he what was, he was doing. He was a great stage presence. He was there. Who cares if it's just moms in the audience? He knew what he was doing. He was performing really great. And that scene in vinyl made me realize, oh, yeah, what if he did get back to the music? What if How he did cool kick the drugs? What if he, he would have been like Johnny Cash. He would have been doing like covers of modern songs. It would have been a lot more country, I there's, think. There's this really cool great. There's this really cool made-for-TV movie they did for VH1 back when VH1 was trying to be a real network. <laughs> and like a real network. Uh, like they had movies and things. They thought they were going to be the next fucking, I don't know, at least A&E. Mm. And uh, they had a movie called Two of Us, which was about supposedly the last day that John Lennon and Paul McCartney spent together before John oh, Lennon died. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, I think it was based on a play. It feels like it's based on a play. It, it just, was, them yeah. con- just them conversing. But there's, it ends with this great moment where I guess there was an episode of Saturday Night Live where Lauren Michaels offered like an absurdly low amount of money to get the Beatles back together. Yeah, the, like, the, if you come uh, back together... Three hundred dollars. I think I think it was one hundred dollars, and it was made out to the Beatles. And later, later that episode, uh, there's this like backstage, uh, kind of discreet camera work of yeah. of. Uh, 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 Harry Shearer talking to uh, George Harrison, who showed up. He's <laughs> like, like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm here for the check." Well, I mean, we made it out to all four of you. I'm not sure if we can just give it to just you. Like, what was George Harrison doing? But the gag was in, the, in this movie was that Paul McCartney and John Lennon were in town and watching TV mm-hmm. and almost went. And then something happened. And it's just this kind of fun little almost <laughs> bit of history. Yeah. Um, but that's actually a pretty good movie. I, if you liked mm. vinyl, I think you'd really like Two of Us. Uh, there's a bit in or, vinyl where or, John Lennon shows up, mm. and it's actually rather similar to a scene in Two of Us where they encounter fans yeah. uh, in the middle of a, of a bar. There's a great bit in... Sorry, I love Two of Us. There's a great uh, bit in Two of Us where they're going to go out in public, but they, they're the Beatles, and they can't they have mm. to have disguises, so they both dress as Ringo. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. That's a funny bit. Anyway, vinyl. Uh, so, in vinyl <laughs> so, but at this point in vinyl, Richie thinks to himself, he's been seeing the number eighteen everywhere. It's like he's mm. been gaslighted by the universe, <laughs> and he thinks eighteen is going to be the thing that you know puts them over the top. So, he, while while Ray Romano is is getting boned six ways from Sunday, he takes the money and he puts all of it on them on eighteen, and, and loses, loses all of it. it all. And, and he convinces Ray Romano the, that the, the ladies lady stole, stole it. it, and and so Ray Romano is blaming blaming himself, and mortgaging his house to save the company. He feels really bad. I'm and then, of course, he puts it to when he gets a call from the, the casino saying, hey, and you spent so much money at the tables like, no, I didn't. Wait a minute. <laughs> and uh, then that 
gets them in with the mob in like the third well, to last episode. Well, but the mob had been there all along. The mob um, had been there all along. But Richie they, they, had they Richie had a former boss who had them. deals with the mob, and as a result of their deals yeah. with the mob, um, Richie's first act, a, a blues singer. Mm. Uh, ends up basically getting completely screwed over and gets his windpipe crushed by the mafia. Mm. And Richie, now that he's starting to question his life and realizing that he needs to reprioritize and live by some degree of principles, tries to make it up to the dude, but then the dude decides to become a manager himself and manage Richie's new hot band, The Nasty Beds, which is led by Mick Jagger's son. That, um, which is a stupid... It's Even it's for a, a fake band name, that's a stupid fake band name. I kept waiting name. for them to change their name and then yeah. we find out that they were like... I don't fucking know the Ramones or the Misfits or I don't, well, not the, Misfits, but you know what I mean. Like one, some, one of the Sex Pistols would have gone some on. Some yeah. recognizable band. I kept mm. expecting them to change the name, and we'd find out they no, become it, it another tur- real. It band. turns out that they're the Nasty Bits, and the Nasty Bits was discovered by Juno Temple's character. She's sleeping with the the lead singer. Yes, and uh, they're signed on because they're punk and you know this was yeah. kind of when punk was just starting to become a thing it yeah. was really raw and really energetic yeah. and you expect them to sort of get them into the studio have them record whatever smash stuff and have this sort of cathartic moment but so much of the show the entire run of this show in fact is about priming them and primping them and telling them what it's really about and changing managers and i understand what's the, that's what the record Com- record companies are really like. Yeah, that's what that's you what do. The industry does. Yeah, but you, you you get them ready for the big time. Yeah, they find these this band and it's kind of exciting. But then the moment never comes. You know, mm-hmm. they they get to put on a show. They get to open for the New York Dolls eventually, and that's kind of a cathartic moment. Mm-hmm. We have to spend so long getting there, and so much discussion, and so much mm-hmm. changing hands. That and it's not about how they're kind of losing hope. It's just that they're frustrated by the way things work. Yeah. And it's frustrating to watch. And it is frustrating. And and there's actually you can, there's good and drama there, but there's good there's good drama that can be made of this, but exactly. just depicting it the way it is isn't exciting or dramatic or interesting. Well, especially because they're constantly digressing. Mm-hmm. Like there's this like, oh well, here's this whatever you're invested in. You're invested in the murder subplot, well, that's gonna be a very small part of the show. You're invested in the whole uh uh getting the show back together, getting the uh, the the company back to its principles and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we still got a whole murder subplot. Juno Temple sleeping with the band and also her mom mom is being a bitch oh, or something that never really gets explained terribly well it's just she's got like a rich mom who disapproves of her and she's kind of screwing rich, her rich over polish mom and don't, uh, i don't care like and then you have this whole bit with the nasty bits you could have done a whole show about a punk just band, about the nasty just bits, about yeah. a punk band trying to make it in the 70s you know it's that thing you you fucking don't <laughs> you know like just some it, that's all it is. It's that, a band trying to make it. That's a, that, that's a story. That thing, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, basically. Like, it's just from a different era. And, uh, like, you could do that. Uh, but none of the storylines get quite enough attention to ever really hammer themselves home. This show, I think, well, is, I think, I think it's undermined by its own ensemble. Well, I, I think the problem is uh, it, it follows a lot of... Uh, it didn't have a focus. Yeah. It, you can tell that they were just sort of rolling and letting the show grow and evolve as it went along. Yeah. And Thinking. I think they expected, because it had Mick Jagger and Martin Scorsese attached, and they had so many talented people, that it was just going to keep going, that it was naturally going to be a hit. People would Which cut them meant, some slack. HBO doesn't yeah. cancel shows too easily. They like so to commit for a while. It, it they don't meant, like admitting they made a mistake. It meant that the showrunners had maybe too much freedom to just sort of let mm-hmm. the stories find themselves. Mm-hmm. And as a result, nothing really got to the point. They weren't really facing it. By the end of the series, 10 episodes in, they were still not even faced in any sort of definite direction. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of crap had gone down, but the show, 
still hadn't lived up to the premise that was announced in the first episode. No, it really. You needed hadn't. something that's, that was so much tighter than this. That's how I felt you, about the newsroom too. The, yeah. the, the thing with this show is, um, it, it's frustrating because it's not bad. It's not bad. It, it's, it's not bad until we get to the Ernst character, and I'll, I'm going to get oh, to the, the Ernst fuck episode. That episode. The because second that, that episode began, I knew exactly where it was going, and they thought they were so fucking I, I clever. I didn't and it was, quite predict oh, it, but when it finally got to the big reveal, I was like, literally oh, I the was, second, it, the show had completely lost me. It's like this is stupid and dumb and bad. This How is the dare ki- you? This is the kind of trite storytelling. Oh. You've succumbed to in season seven when you've run out of ideas. Yeah, or or something that you would find in an episode of like a radio drama from 1938. That's how old this is. Yeah, and, um, but it, in like the last 15 years or so, I just had this resurgence of triteness. So here's the basic <laughs> resurgence idea. Resurgence of triteness. That's my punk band. There was a couple of movies that pulled off this twist in the late 90s that mm. got us because no one had done it in a while. Mm. And then it became really cliche real mm. fast. So basically, Richie and his wife, they're on the outs. She's left. She's like living with a bunch of her... Cur- oh, wait, she hasn't, she, she hasn't moved yet. She, she hasn't moved, she yet. Hasn't she moved yet. She eventually moves into the Chelsea, which is kind of fun. <laughs> That's pretty cool. It's like, a, yeah. oh, there's Sid and his girlfriend. They're moving in downstairs. Well, that wasn't until later, but yeah. Anyway, he is completely off his rocker. He's doing drugs a lot. She's trying to stay out of it. He's trying to keep their kids safe. Mm. He's not abusive, but you, I wouldn't trust the, the, him with the kids. The kids like, are barely in the show, by yeah, the way. They're, they're just the, a plot yeah, point. There's, there's a, a boy and a girl, and they kind of show up in the background yeah. a few times. Uh, in any case, so he... She's gone, and he is, spends an entire episode hanging out with this guy, Ernst, who's this German kind of art he is, dude. He's an art dude who also hung around with Warhol, and he is the boyfriend of this... Oh, uh, brother. Or brother. No, br- brother. boyfriend or brother? Possibly both. Uh, who knows? <laughs> it would surprise me. Either boyfriend or brother of it's not this, terribly important. Of they this, have a relationship. This hot Swedish chick that Olivia Wilde's character used to have an affair with. Yeah, and like and like they're best friends and they're, now. And they're best friends now. Yeah, they're not yeah. having an affair anymore. So but. so she's hanging out with uh, what's the actress's name again? Uh, oh, let me look it up. From, uh, she's from Pitch Perfect Pitch Two, Perfect. and she was Bir- amazing in Pitch Perfect. Birgitta Hjort Sorensen is she's, her name, and she's great. I love mm. her. She's got a great presence. Uh, she's good. So they're they're hanging off, they're doing their thing. She's considering leaving Richie forever. Mm. Meanwhile, Richie is just on a bender to end all benders mm. with Ernst, who just keeps sort of egging him on. Encouraging him to do naughty things. Yeah, encouraging him to do naughty things, you know, really pushing him to to not trust his wife, you know, assuming that she's probably getting, you know, gangbanged as we speak. Mm. And Richie's just like, no, not gangbanged. And we're just like, that's probably not happening because we can see it. And then, uh, uh, and he keeps saying, I want a hot dog. And oh, isn't that funny? He always wants this hot dog. Now, specifically Nathan's hot dog. A Nathan's hot dog. I want to go that's, to Nathan's. That's, that's, that's a good, uh, good area detail. Nathan's big, big in, in New York. Yeah. Um, and uh, sure enough, by the end of the episode, we realize that no one has actually communicated with Ernst other than Richie. Yeah. And it turns out that the last time Richie was doing drugs, he got them all in a car accident. Yeah, we do a, a flashback where Olivia Wilde and Birgit and Ernst mm-hmm. and, and Richie's driving yeah. are speeding toward Coney Island. He, you know, uh, Ernst says, turn around, we missed Nathan's, I want the hot dog. And then they get in a huge car accident and Ernst fucking dies. So he's been, he's been talking, talking to, to a ghost, ghost the entire Ernst, time. The, it is so it's fucking it's, trite. It's mawkish and bad, and it's, it's bad badly, storytelling. It's bad story. You wrote a bad song, PT. <laughs> <laughs> That's just bad yeah. song writing. 
That's just lazy songwriting. Thank uh, you, Fantastic Mr. Fox. <laughs> so, yeah, they wrote this bad episode, which it's is not complete, a good it's completely distracting. I, I thought the Elvis all episode the, was kind of trite to begin with, but at least the it other, went somewhere. Well, yeah, but all of the other plot lines for epi- there's like there's only 10 episodes and f- like five of them are devoted to these side stories that don't, that derail all of the other storylines. Yeah, they feel like this isn't an episodic show. This is a show with momentum and when you digress like this, you've got to have a good reason to. Mm. There's a great episode of Breaking Bad <laughs> where um, I think season three, season four, and at the almost, I think almost the entire episode just takes place in their lab where they're making the meth and it's just them trying to kill a fly because <laughs> the fly might contaminate the meth and they have to get it. There's actually a lot at stake. There's actually a lot at stake, but it's also just everyone's just, there's so much going on that the breather was actually really great and it gave everyone an opportunity to mm. act. Yeah, like yeah. Just to just to be the characters and interact and it was great and it worked. Mm. Vinyl hasn't been going on long enough to earn this episode. This is like no. the alternate reality episode in Mortal Instruments City which, in, in the Shadowhunters. Shadowhunters, yeah. Which, yeah, where they which happened like yeah two thirds of the way through season one, you, and they're already doing the alternate reality version. You can't of the do characters. an alternate reality episode until we know the characters. There's no <laughs> point in showing the characters acting differently if we don't know who they are yet. Mm. And here is an episode where like you haven't, you don't have the goodwill well, necessary to get away with this cheap shot. No. I've compared this to Mad Men, and I think yeah. Richie Finestra is a direct lift of lift of Don Draper, in that they're certainly, they're certainly kind they're going of, for the same thing. They're kind of immoral people in charge mm-hmm. of this high moneyed uh, kind mm-hmm. of old business. Mm-hmm. They're both uh, lying about a lot. They're mm-hmm. both guilty of a lot, yeah. and but they still get to charge ahead and be in charge. Now with Don Draper, I haven't seen much Mad Men, but I've seen enough to know. That Don Draper is one charming bastard, mm-hmm. and you know why he gets away with it. He's allowed to be kind of amoral because the audience is charmed by him, mm-hmm. uh, and he gets to do these bad things. But you also get to see his struggle, and he's you know a classic antihero. We don't like him necessarily, right. but we're with him, and we understand him, and we want to see where he goes. Richie just behaves like a coked-out maniac throughout the whole show. He is not charming enough for us to sympathize with him as a lead character, so when he does bad things, we just hate him more. I don't even think and it's... And I think nice... that's a, yeah. that's a, one of the fundamental problems with the show. Richie is not allowed to be charming or capable in any sort of way because he doesn't achieve anything. Well, and I think this is also another problem. I forget who it was. I want to say it was Alfred Hitchcock, but it was some famous director. Hmm. And he argued that you don't have to like a character... To, to sympathize with them and want oh. them to succeed. You just have to see that they're good at their job. Because we respect I, people who are good at their job. I didn't exactly. see Richie being good at his job. Exactly. Don Draper is good at his fucking job. Oh. He is good at what he does. And we respect him for that even when he's acting like an asshole. Mm. Richie talks a big game. And we see you know, he's got this company. But maybe it would have been more interesting to see him form the company than it was well, to see him try to defend it. Because we... He, he, Again, he never if, really does anything all that interesting. He does an isolated the, moment of genius a couple of times, and the rest of the time yeah. he's just a jerk. If it had fulfilled the promise of the first episode, saying we're going to start rebuilding this, and mm. he knuckled under, gave up the... If, if this was a show about a coke addict whose company was falling apart because it had just fallen into hedonism, and it was about we're going to start being 
good. We're going to be better mm-hmm. people. We're going to be, you know, stick to our integrity and we're going to start doing things differently. And if it was about trying to find success in a completely new model and sticking to your principles right. and, you know, struggling and failing, but needing to stick to your principles because that's all you have and trying to find a new model of success within the record industry in the 1970s, mm-hmm. that would have been fascinating. It could have been fascinating. Because you, cause you get but, to see mm-hmm. somebody sticking for principles. You get to see interesting characters, these same interesting characters, and you get to understand very intimately how the record industry in the 1970s works. Mm -hmm. In this, it's just sort of this mishmash of hazily remembered 1970s nostalgia (laughs) about the the typical cliches of excess and celebrity that we hear in all stories of the 1970s. You've heard these stories before, and they're not necessarily presented in an interesting way. Boogie Nights, it's so much better. Here's the thing. Boogie Nights, at the very least, kind of took place in a somewhat fictional universe. Mm. You know, he didn't... Kind of. Well, Dirk Diggler didn't meet John Holmes. No, well, that's true. that's what I mean. You don't have the, there's that you always have this slight disconnect mm. in in vinyl because they constantly interact with actual people. Oh. Um, there's this sense that this is some corner of history that we just haven't heard of, and I don't think you can sustain that, especially well, as, when as they meet more and more celebrities. They, well, not even just as they meet more and more celebrities. If the entire premise is will they change the record industry? Well, fucking obviously not. Mm. They didn't do it. This is my same problem with the newsroom. Where it's, it's, you know that it takes place in the past. It wasn't like contemporary. Mm. They wanted to take place slightly in the past so that all the news stories would be real news stories. But the problem was, A, they were Monday morning quarterbacking all the people who actually had to do the real work of journalism. <laughs> and it's easy to, to make all the right decisions after the fact. Mm. They did an okay job of addressing it, but that was a problem. But the other problem is, we know it didn't work. Well, that, We know it didn't work. Again, that, that, but that would have been great about this. I would... I would totally like see a documentary, for instance, about a record label that tried to do this and failed. Exactly. It would be great if it would be about the record industry that stuck to their guns, still failed, but their integrity was what kept you moving along. But the way that vinyl plays is it keeps yeah. implying that they're going to get there. The nasty bits are going to get there. One of the climactic plot points. We've seen that the lead singer of the nasty bits is, is a heroin addict. Mm. And just at the end, he has a huge falling out with Juno Temple. She has a three-way with him and his lead guitarist. He's jealous. He hits the smack too hard. And then just before the opening over for the New York Dolls, he ODs. Yeah. And if he had just died, it would have mm. been fucking tragic. But it would have justified that. They didn't well, make the, it. Well, yeah, Shit that, happened. That's, that's the, the that would have been more interesting to it, me. It would have been more interesting. It would have made more sense dramatically. It would have been such a bummer, though, that it was like, I would have just said, oh, what's the point of all this whole, <laughs> of this whole series? I'm not sure that's not the point we're supposed mm. to be taking from it. I mean, there's music and it's wonderful, and it's, but at the same time, there was this environment of such avarice and hedonism and and wanton I don't want to say immorality well, like I'm some sort of conservative talk show host but there's just this apathy for anything yeah. that's sensitive well, a lot c- of the time consider what what happened in the 1970s uh, after see this in context of the documentary film Gimme Shelter Hmm. Uh, have you seen Give Me Shelter? I actually so, haven't seen Give Me Shelter. Oh, I, I'm first, wrong. First of all, tisk tisk. Uh, secondly, uh, it took place in 1969. It's about a, a pretty disastrous concert that was put on by the Rolling Stones. Right. And uh, they thought it would be great if they had some security there, try to keep things really organized. But they chose just the wrong venue because uh, the way the stage was set up, nobody could see the stage. Yeah. It wasn't like Woodstock where everybody's like up on a hill and you could kind of see the stage in the distance. Nobody could see the stage. Tensions were high and they hired security. Now, some brilliant asshole, <laughs> Mick Jagger, uh, 
thought it would be a great idea if they hired Hell's Angels to do security at the concerts. Yeah. Uh, a guy got fatally stabbed. Yes. Uh, on camera. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty, I do know the story. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, a lot of people have pointed to that moment, the death of this guy who was at this Rolling Stones concert, as kind of the end of the 60s. The promise of the 60s, mm. of, uh, of the sort of free love and how the drugs and the sex will just make us free and happier and better people. We will grow as a result of all these social revolutions. Uh, civil rights are going to just work out. Everything's going to be great. It was all optimism. And then... There's this great uh, speech in uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. You can go to the edge of the desert, and with the right kind of eyes, you can look west and see where that wave broke and went rolling back. And uh, that's what the 1970s is. It's just the the, 60s dying for a whole decade? The idealism died, Uh but we still had the drugs and the sex. Well, the the (laughs) 70s were a time, were a very reactionary time. You know, in the 60s, there's... And and then, yeah, then economics and war happened and everybody was miserable. But also Fear and Loathing, go back to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Uh, uh, the book and the movie. mm -hmm. The movie's a fairly faithful adaptation. Uh, He's talking about how in the 60s, there was this sense that our positive energy would prevail. Yeah. That we wouldn't even really have to do that much. That we just have to be positive, keep talking about it, protest. I'm not saying they did nothing, but like they didn't like run for office en masse or anything (laughs) like that. There was just this positive vibes, we're going to change the world. And by the 70s, you realize it wasn't going to work out that way. And a lot of the art in the 70s, a lot of the music and Mm. a lot of the movies, uh, not so much the TV because it was still very controlled, but uh, was somewhat. The silliness is where in the 1970s that came out in TV. That came out in the TV. But but there was so much anger and Mm. so much disillusionment. uh, Disillusionment. And it was coming out in fascinating hard hitting movies that like yeah, everything and, from and network to, the, to led fucking to the American New Wave yeah. led by Martin Scorsese who right. produced the show which, so. is, which is interesting and I think sometimes um, I, I, I am not gonna look I'm a critic I might criticize Martin Scorsese I don't think bringing out the dead is very good <laughs> fine he's, he's made his share of stinkers I'm, I'm sure he can handle it yeah. I'm not gonna tell Martin Scorsese he has no idea what he's doing but I wonder if maybe he and Mick Jagger together might have been a little close to the material and they might not necessarily know why the events and the, the sort of the geography of, what, that, of vinyl, why do they appeal to us now? What, what, well, what do they, how do they appeal to people what, who weren't there? What made this significant beyond the sort of vague speeches Richie gives about loving music? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, why are we watching this? Why is this historically significant? Now, Where's the context? Mad Men we can relate to because we're always uh, looking at ads, and it's a, a segment of the business world we don't usually think about. Yeah, that, uh, that was interesting. We've indus- never seen a show like that before. The record industry is something I think the public in general is a little bit more familiar with. At least in uh, a general in, way. In a general sort of way. Yeah. We understand it's there. We understand a little bit how it works because we've, we've seen, like, followed our favorite artists and heard the phrase like screwed over by the label. Well, and we, and, we, and, and we've also survived the death of physical media and the big blows that the record industry right. took in the modern age. But so, also we have, there's tons of documentaries. Yeah. If you like a band and there's like a VH1 special about it behind mm. the music, there's a decent chance you watch so it. We, so you have some sense of these things The n- public knows of all of, about all this. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. Mick Jagger and, and Martin Scorsese needed to get together and say, well, this is dear to us. Mm -hmm. But we need to figure out why this is culturally important. Mm -hmm. But the problem was 
they were the ones doing it. Yeah, they why, might not they, have so the they context. Would, well, they would have to ask, why um, Why am I historically significant? And that's a yeah. horrible question to ask yourself. It's probably not conducive to, to great storytelling mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, and, and, and yet, you know, again, I don't think the show is a complete watch. It's just when they came down to, they got the vibe right. I wanted mm. to. I wanted to visit this <laughs> world. I don't want to live there. I'd get, I, I just I'd wanted. Get, to, I'd die. But like, I just wanted to reach in the yeah. screen and and fix it. You know, it's just like <laughs> I saw it falling apart. It's like I felt like I could catch certain pieces. Yeah. And stick them back no, on. Oh, Juno Temple! Don't fuck those guys. <laughs> uh, but but it's, like but it's like a Play-Doh sculpture. I loved the aesthetic. Mm. I loved uh, the, again the production design, the costume design. It's a little too perfect, but that's fine. I can live with that. I that's like fine. that. Yeah, that's all right. Um, yeah, the music is fantastic. The the cameos of like actors playing these people but like it's all very enticing and I want to go mm. and that's great but I want the story being told to feel less contrived I want it to mm. feel more natural or I want it to feel completely unnatural and just fucking go for it yeah, do, I do, haven't do, seen like Baz oh, Luhrmann's new series but I, I had no doubt he is not mm. the subtlest filmmaker who is going to fucking go for I it. Think, what, what, I want either the David Simon or the Baz Luhrmann version of this because vinyl is right in the middle and I'm not that interested. Yeah, well, you, need, you need the Aaron Sorkin approach. You need a lot uh, of quick, quick, well, I, I just love I'm Aaron not, Sorkin's dialogue. I, but I love his uh, dialogue and I necessarily love all of his work. Yeah, well, fair enough. Yeah, the newsroom rubbed me the wrong way in case you hadn't picked that up. It was I, a good idea. I don't think it worked. But I, I, yeah. I, I dig the hell out of the social network. But uh, Social network's great. Yeah. I, lo- uh, I love Aaron Sorkin. But, but right. so my like point is, he, he, his characters all tend to, they're all very intelligent, and they all have a, a purpose within each scene. Yeah. And uh, th- their their dialogue belies that intelligence. And yeah. You need at least a couple characters like that in vinyl. <laughs> they can't all just be whiny bastards and cokeheads. Or, or like they're, and they're not, but like the ones that aren't don't get as much screen time. Yeah. Like the, um, what's the guy's name? What's the name of the guy that Richie screwed over and is now the manager with like the broken vocal cords? Oh gosh. Um, what's the name of that guy? He's, he's such a good actor and he's a really good presence in this. Yeah. Let me, uh, yeah. Look, look that up. Cause he is... Lester Grimes is the character. Yeah. Uh, the actor's name is Otto Essendo. Yeah. Uh, and he's it, great and he's strong and he's powerful, but, uh, he doesn't have enough to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Let's get down the brass tacks. <laughs> How much you want for the ape? <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah, well, it's, a good, it's a good movie. Oh. Uh, was vinyl canceled too soon? Uh, no. Uh, sometimes I see a show like this, you know, how hugely ambitious it is, and think that it re- requires a few seasons maybe to find its feet. Mm-hmm. But I feel like... I saw no promise. Yeah. I didn't see that they, like they ended off on a place where they're like finally pointed in the right direction. No, they got to the last episode and it was just business as usual. Here's the last episode and they're doing this more stuff. And they were just, if the drama was just going to continue to meander the way it did through Mm -hmm. the first 10 episodes, I didn't want to see more. No, I'm I'm glad we had it. But because again, I, again, I liked visiting the world, Mm. but yeah, they're really, you're right. There just is no promise that the show was going to get great. Mm. And there's no promise that the show is going to justify it's enormous expense. Like I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about like an executive over at HBO because initially uh, the show was going to continue, but under a different showrunner. And then HBO decided, you know what? It's only going to change so much. Mm. Like we can't completely retool the entire concept. This is basically what it is. Maybe you'll be a little better at it, but this is it. Uh-huh. And it's just not that good. It's again, I think the show had come out probably when they originally pitched it, like <laughs> five ten years ago, whenever Mick Jagger and Martin mm. Scorsese originally came up with the concept. 
Uh, it might have felt kind of revolutionary. This might have all been great. But as it stands, it's just so familiar. It's so yeah, it really normalized is. that the the it should feel like an event. It should feel like a special show that takes mm. you into a different world, takes you into a different time, well, I think, and excites uh, you. And it just left me... Every once in a while it was good. There are good episodes here or there, good mm. moments, good performances. But as a show... No, I don't just really didn't, care didn't. that much. Uh, the problem with a show like Vinyl is... Uh, HBO is trying more and more ambitious things, and I admire that. Uh, yeah. And the problem, however, is now that thanks to things like Game of Thrones, which is like the biggest hit in the history of all television, it's just enormous, Game yeah. of Thrones. And it's hugely expensive as well. Yeah. It's one of the most ambitious productions on TV. Boardwalk Empire, they built an entire city to film that thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the productions are becoming bigger and bigger and bigger on TV that in order to sustain. They have to be big hits. They have to be big hits, and they have to be huge critical successes. They have yeah. to win awards and get the ratings. Like, and you can and get and, by and on one to, of those for a while, but if you don't have, have both, to, it's They not have worth to it. be so big and so successful, though, that if you make even the smallest misstep, of course it's going to get canceled. Yeah. And I think if they aim too high, they're doomed to fail. Yeah. And I think that's what happened with vinyl. They aimed really, really high. They got this huge talent. They're going to option all this music. They're going to explode the record industry of the 1970s that's really interesting and they spent so much time and energy and thought on sort of the concept of what the show how they were going to sell it how are they going to package it they didn't really bother making a good show or maybe and i'm going to throw this out there uh, maybe this might be one of those instances where a show was in development for so long that i got overdeveloped that maybe like too. richie finestra's company couple, maybe they too just too many characters too many stories too yeah. many cooks in the soup or maybe it's just they lost sight of the exact thing yeah. that they were there to do in the first place and it just got kind of muddled i, I think it's either, there either but they it's not lost sight sufficient. of it I, i'm not sure if they either they lost sight of it or they just never had it to begin with yeah so yeah it, it, it just Fair, Sorry, folks. Fair, canceled. Fair, it was canceled too soon. No, it was canceled it, soon enough. It was canceled soon enough. It, it, it was canceled it, it, soon it enough. It ran its course. It had a good run. This was about fine, as good as it was yeah. going to get. I honestly cannot imagine a second season improving enough to make it worthwhile. Mm. Uh, but uh, we did it. We took your request. <laughs> we listened to vi- oh, we listened to vinyl. We listened Vincent, to all we of vinyl. Listen to vinyl, but yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm glad we had the experience. Uh, we are going to move on from here. Uh, we're going to have another mini episode. Uh, last week, uh, we did a one episode wonder called Black Bart, sort of as a surprise. <laughs> and uh, next week, we're going to be back with another short episode about uh, kind of a one-off special slash pilot for an animated series based on the incredible Crash Dummies <laughs> that Whitney which, loves which, and I have words about. Yeah, yeah, we, <laughs> I have things to say about this um, show. Before we go, we have one letter I'd like to read. Uh, we did yeah. uh, Chuck Norris Karate Commandos. Yeah. Uh, the bad guys on that show was called Vulture, an acronym. Oh, yeah. And we asked for people to fill it in, so we got a, a letter about that. Yeah, okay, we've had a, we, we talked a bit about that on uh, the other uh, show, though, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, uh, but okay. here's a new one. Oh, here's a new one, okay. Villainous United Legion to ultimately rule Earth. That's a good one. That's a good one. That's pretty rock solid. <laughs> that's from Christian. Keep coming that's back from at Christian. us. Keep, e- keep emailing us, bmoviespodcast at gmail.com with new ideas for what the acronym Vulture could mean. <laughs> oh, just keep them coming. I would love to have a new one every episode. Uh, so that's it. Uh, we will. Uh, we are on iTunes. Please subscribe. Uh, leave us a review. Just give us a star rating, something. It really helps. Uh, we will be back in two weeks with another full or fuller season 
of uh, potentially canceled too soon television. We're going to be reviewing uh, the lesser known David Lynch television series on the air. It was his follow up to Twin Peaks. Yeah, everyone loved Twin Peaks for a while, and then he and everyone knows that Mulholland Drive didn't take off, so he turned it into a hit movie, or at least a you know, critically acclaimed movie. No one talks about it on the air, and we're going to talk about <laughs> it in two weeks. In one week, Incredible Crash Dummies, and after that. On the on air. air. And uh, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Yeah, li- you guys are uh, great. D- write in, uh, not just with Vulture, but uh, with uh, any comments or, yeah. or complaints you might have. Yeah, uh, comments uh, are good. Questions are fine. Uh, uh, rebuttals, if you love a show we didn't care for. And, and of course, hated a show we love. And of course, requests of shows you'd like us yes. to talk about. Uh, we have tons of requests, but we, we're accepting them all. Mm. We're going to get to all of them eventually. Well, we might die first. Like, that's how many we have. <laughs> but uh, we, we will definitely want Uh to get to them all and we'll do our best Uh, so we're always looking for new shows we've never heard of Uh, keep sending them on tweet us at bmovies podcast you can hear our weekly movie reviews and uh, news and interviews and whatnot at the bmovies podcast which is also on itunes Uh, and thank you very much for listening Mm -hmm. and um it's my hbo vanity card i like it